Welcome to Office Talk, a fortnightly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leading architects about their approach to business, marketing, and communications. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, an architectural marketing expert and director of Office Dave Sharp, a marketing practice offering specialized consultancy, marketing, and PR services tailored to meet the particular needs of architects. Visit officedavesharp.com to learn more or follow the practice on Instagram at officedavesharp. This episode was sponsored by ArchiPro. ArchiPro showcases the best and latest in the architecture and building industry and helps to connect homeowners with trusted trade professionals and products that will suit their needs. For architects and designers, ArchiPro helps you to create a profile for your practice in a way that best expresses your brand and your work, and then it directly connects you with a niche audience of people on their architectural build or renovation journey. Many architects rely on word-of-mouth referrals or search engine traffic to find new clients, but it can be difficult to attract the people you really want to design for and work with. That's why ArchiPro helps clients to match their specific architectural taste and budget with the right architect or designer for their project. You can also use the platform throughout the design and build journey with your clients by directly sharing inspiration and sourcing products for your projects as well. So if you'd like to find out more about ArchiPro, visit www.archipro.com.au. Joining me on the podcast today is Neil Hugh Kenner and Lillian Lim from Neil Hugh Office, a brand strategy and marketing agency based in Melbourne who specialize in design and the built environment. Some of the clients their agency manages include Milieu, Fieldwork, Mim Design, Daniel Bottom Studio, the National Gallery of Victoria and Melbourne Design Week. In this episode, Neil, Lillian and I spoke about a process architects can take to better understand their brand strategy, looking at the questions and structure NHO take with their clients, to how a brand strategy document can actually be used in the day-to-day of your practice to make decisions, and why it's so important to figure out your brand before diving headfirst into your marketing tactics. We looked at the importance of consistency and a curated quality to your marketing website and social media, and we took an in-depth look at how NHO approach the PR process, from setting clear objectives, deciding on focus projects, managing stakeholders such as consultants, builders and clients, and finally their thoughts on how to select the right mix of publications depending on your goals. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Neil Hugh Kenner and Lillian Lim from Neil Hugh Office. And before we get started, just a quick heads up that I had some microphone issues this month, so thanks for putting up with my audio for the next couple of episodes and it'll be back to normal soon. Neil and Lillian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. It's cool to see you guys here and talk about your studio and the work that you're doing with architects. So maybe, I guess, for the audience who aren't familiar with NHO and your office, maybe a little bit of a background on kind of who you guys are, what you do, and maybe some of the different practices that you work with in the industry. NHO is a full-service brand strategy and marketing agency. So we service like-minded design-based clients that share our value of design. So predominantly that is made up of architects, interior designers, furniture and lighting designers, um, boutique property developers, but also I guess more kind of nuanced expressions of design across arts and culture, retail and hospitality. So yeah, we, we offer, I guess, the full service marketing mix, starting from brand strategy right through to, um, I guess, implementation. Yeah. And Lillian, how long have you been with the office for? I have been with NHO for four years. Okay, cool. And I was made a director last 
July. So oh my God, just congratulations. Thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> and Neil, um, where, when did you found the brand or the, or the studio? How, what, what sort of year did you start the practice? So I think um, NHO is now in its, in its current form as an agency. I think we are about just over six years old. Okay. But prior to that, prior to forming, I guess, as an agency, I was working as an independent consultant. So kind of more like a one man show. And I did that for a couple of years and things sort of grew from there into, into uh, what it is today. In those early days when you were the sort of the, the one man consultant, was that primarily sort of more the brand strategy, brand definition stuff? Was it marketing? Was it kind of all of the above PR? I mean, is it similar sort of comprehensive service that you guys offer now or were you sort of more specialized in those early days? It definitely started off more on the brand strategy side of things and the marketing. And as it kind of evolved, I guess I was very uh, responsive to what the market was looking for. And so people would ask for specific services and, you know, for a while it was kind of about how do we resource those? How do we respond to this opportunity? And so it kind of evolved, but I would say in terms of like the core service offering, it's, it's been pretty consistent. Yeah. Now let's get into values because I think this is just something that people struggle with so badly to figure out on their own. And it's just always a thing that people feel very uncertain about, not just value specifically, but some of those other things that you've mentioned to me previously, the brand personality traits, the vision for the studio, all those different nuances of the brand, what it stands for. Everyone's aware of all these concepts, but actually applying them uh, in your own studio is really, really difficult and people struggle to do it. Um, so it's a really sort of uh, complicated topic. It's tough to work out where to sort of start with it, but it's something that you guys do every day with the clients that you work with. So I guess where do we begin in talking about how an architecture or interior design practice would go about starting this process of clarifying their values and you know their brand personality and all that stuff? It's a big question, but where would, where would you kind of begin? I guess if you're engaging someone like us, so an external consultant, I think we've got the benefit of having a bit of a kind of a bird's eye view of the industry. And, and we've kind of developed a methodology um, over kind of many, many years um, that we've kind of tweaked and refined over time that's really been um, structured in a way to make sure that we're getting all of those kind of juicy insights from, I guess, the client. Um, and we can kind of stress test certain assumptions to really ensure that what we're extracting is truly kind of unique, differentiated and nuanced within the broader landscape, which can be quite difficult if you're trying to do it, I guess, in-house. You just don't have that broader lens to be able to truly kind of work out whether what you're coming up with is differentiated relative to the to the broader industry. Yeah. And is that for you, for you guys, is that just sort of a, having that broader perspective? And, you know, I get this too with my clients as well when they when they mm -hmm. kind of talk to me about what, what they feel sort of makes them different from other brands. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time you've just kind of heard it all before, right? It's the same yeah. sort of stuff that everybody kind of comes up with because they've only got that view of their own business, really. A hundred percent. And I think we often ask the same question in a number of different ways just to stress test what, what people are saying and challenging, I guess, preconceived notions they might have about their brand and their business. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we can kind of quickly identify what is truly unique to that practice or studio 
yeah. by working with a lot of different practices within the industry. One thing that we always try and make really clear going into a process like this is that our role as facilitators is not about putting words in people's mouths or like pushing into a certain direction. Our role is about bringing it all to the surface and these architects or people in the business or the practice of the studio, they often have the answers. They just don't necessarily know how to articulate them. So uh, it's really important that we actually are not actually coming in with a specific agenda. It's yeah. actually about just kind of like seeing the wood from the trees and, yeah. and it can, and, and when we actually end up presenting a brand strategy back, we actually want it to feel familiar. It shouldn't feel like something completely fresh because it's, it's actually a representation of what they're living and breathing every day so our job is done when it actually it's familiar but maybe they hadn't thought about articulating it that way or they hadn't perhaps prioritized that over that or those yeah. kind of things yeah no definitely i mean it sort of reminds me a little bit of when when people get into writing they'll they'll often find that just the process of writing down your thoughts it sort of forces you to think about them and articulate them and then you know it was all inside but you weren't able to just pull it out of the top of your head you actually have to take that time to sit down put your thoughts together and start to express that out through writing and it's sort of similar i think in a way because it doesn't sound like they're sitting there going, I, I completely have total clarity and understanding of what I'm about. I just need somebody to help me translate it. And they're also not going, I have absolutely no idea. Uh, I need somebody to come along and tell me what I should be doing. It's, it's like at some level, it's part of the operating system. Mm-hmm. It's, it is driving decisions that are being made. It is connecting to things that have influenced that architect or that business owner or you know the the sort of the culture they're a part of but they're just, it's just not at the forefront of their mind and it's not easy for them to sort of articulate it to other people right so that's that's interesting so you guys are just kind of drawing it out going go deeper and deeper and deeper you're like psychologists or something. exactly i mean it does often the workshop does often feel like a therapy session yeah, um, yeah. and so in terms of the client post workshop often they're quite kind of drained and exhausted because yeah. it is kind of putting everything on the table and often you know we have we have the workshop with um, key decision makers within the business and it might be the first time they've actually all sat within a room and actually had that discussion together so um that internal alignment is actually a really key part of the whole process yeah in terms of the structure of a sort of a four hour you know brand definition workshop because i'm just curious i just want to sort of be a fly on the wall and kind of get a little bit of a glimpse of kind of how that's done is that something that you guys prefer to have quite structured or is it something that works best when it's just a spontaneous kind of who knows which direction we might go, kind of like this podcast, not overly planned out, <laughs> you know, or do you guys go, okay, first 30 minutes, we're really concentrating on this, then we move into this, then we move into that. Like what what do you find is the the best approach for, or the approach that you like to follow for extracting some of those ideas from, from the, your victims? <laughs> <laughs> it, is, um, it, it is pretty structured in terms of we, we know what output we need at the end in terms of, um, you know, the, the framework that we've kind of developed. We know what we need yeah. to inform that. So there is a clear structure around that. That being said, I guess we are quite agile throughout the process if there's a certain topic that we think is really interesting and needs to be stressed further we will spend more time on that so I guess we're not 
we have little time guidelines, but but it's not like we're militant about that because sometimes it takes a little bit longer to kind of get to those juicy nuggets, we like to call yeah. them, and other sections can sometimes be a bit faster. So overall, there is a pretty structured framework, but but we do kind of take the client's lead in relation to how much time we spend on certain sections. Yeah, we're definitely very systems and process driven as an agency generally. And so the methodology has been refined over the years in terms of the workshop structure. So just because we've always done it one way doesn't mean that we don't evolve it because you can kind of learn through the different participants and someone might bring a different perspective and we can go, actually, you know what, that's really insightful. We should work that into the agenda. In terms of that workshop structure, and you're bringing people together, you're starting that debate, you're trying to stimulate those conversations, get these ideas starting to emerge. One thing that I think is kind of interesting that comes up is that people often, I guess, approach a marketing agency or what they consider a marketing agency, whatever they think of as you guys from the outside. And they're coming and they might be thinking in terms of the short term, right? Like their need or the catalyst for them approaching your studio might be some concerns around, uh, you know, the economy is a bit slow, we're a bit worried our inquiries are dropping off or, you know, whatever. There's usually some sort of motivator that gets somebody to come into the studio. And then I'm guessing that, you know, you're trying to instill maybe a sort of more healthy or sustainable mindset about, okay, you know, you're going to be in business for the next sort of 10, 20 years. We want this to be some, whatever we work on here. We want this to set you up for a really long period of time in your practice, your business. Um, I'm just interested in maybe exploring sometimes how you take, maybe do you take, feel that you take clients on that journey to sort of see things a different way? Or do you, are you just like the luckiest consultants in the world and everyone that walks in the door is just like super long-term thinking, <laughs> amazing, like Zen masters of business or what, what, what's your approach? I, I would say that, um, yes, we definitely have to take clients on that journey. Um, however, I do feel like we do attract a clientele that is quite like-minded and have through word mm. of mouth heard about our approach or whatnot and there's something that has resonated. So I feel like we're often starting from a quite a healthy base. Having said that, there's no doubt that sometimes people will come and approach us and say, you know, I need to get my name out there, my practice out there, rah, rah, rah. How do we get this project published? What can we be doing on social media? And we have to have that conversation where we say, okay, that's great. That's all very important. But before we do that, what's the foundation? What do you stand for? How are you differentiated? All those elements of the brand strategy, because that is foundational and that actually then informs all of that. So you'll get a much better long-term result if your activity, your marketing activity is underscored by your brand strategy. It gives a kind of a clear focus, a clear direction, and it, it guides your decision-making around how you approach all those marketing tactics. So instead of kind of going out there and, I don't know, trying this and trying that and it all being kind of all yeah. over the place, the brand strategy is what brings it all together. And you can literally pull out the brand definition document and say, okay, this opportunity has been presented to us do we go for it? How does that align with the brand definition? Does it or doesn't it? And that can literally help you make the decision. It's, it feels like sometimes it's, we might have opinions or a point of view on maybe where some of their projects may not actually be possibly up to the bar of their best work. I personally feel like from our position, it's for me a little bit of a taboo to kind of 
try to, you know, critique or judge or analyze their work when, you know, their expertise is in architecture and design. And, I'm, I'm, you know, even though that's my background, I feel very, very out of place having that conversation. And at the end of the day, it's also very subjective, very opinionative, but, but over time with our expertise and experience, we do develop sort of an eye and a gut instinct for what we feel is more marketable and less marketable. Do you ever sort of have conversations with your clients about their work, about their approach and more of the internals of their studio? Since, since you're quite involved in the studio at a very sort of honest and philosophical level, do you, do you guys ever talk about the work or is that something that um, you kind of put to, put to the side as I have a sometimes tendency <laughs> to do? No, I, I definitely think it does come up. And often, I guess, when we're getting into like the strategy project in terms of marketing strategy, not brand strategy, that always starts with identifying um, the objectives of the client. And so clients might often come to us and say, we're really busy. The studio is full. However, we want to be doing more of this type of work or we want to be doing yeah. projects in this budget bracket. And so they can be very busy turning over these projects, but they're not exactly the type of work that they want to be doing. Yeah. There's a lot of that. Yeah. Mm. So then, so then we can help set them an objective around this type, more of this type of work. And like I said, that could literally be down to budget or maybe it's breaking into new sectors or typologies, whatever it is. However, just by setting that objective, that again helps inform our marketing strategy. And for example, we often say to clients, only put work out into the world that's of the quality you want to attract back. So everyone mm. has projects that are maybe more the bread and butter projects. It keeps the studio busy. You need to take them on for, you know, covering your um, costs of running yeah. the business, et cetera. That is a fact, I think. And most practices are probably dealing with that. However, it's also fine to do that work and not necessarily tell the world about it. You know, put all yeah. of your, your marketing energy into the projects that exemplify what you're trying to achieve. And what that does is it tells the market that this is the standard of work that you're doing. Um, and uh, over time, it does actually have an impact on the inbound inquiries you get because people are associating you with this type of budget, not something smaller, which is perhaps where you started yeah. and you're trying to get out of. But it's it's a self-fulfilling prophecy if you keep putting work out into the world on these small budget projects, if that's not what you want to do. Absolutely. I guess like yeah, it's interesting. You do definitely see a lot of studios, particularly as they get older and more established, where they have built up a little bit more of a catalogue of or their portfolio is getting pretty expansive and you look at their website and you can basically look at you know the top of the page the portfolio section they're all kind of eights nines and tens but all you have to do is scroll down a little bit further and you're looking at some one twos and threes <laughs> down the yeah. bottom but they're sort of tucked away down there because obviously they don't want to draw too much attention to them but you know one of the first things you do is kind of look at okay maybe we we just need to draw a bit of a line here and go type sort of a less is more approach quality over quantity right maybe fewer projects but let's just show the absolute best work that you've done. Definitely. It is about putting your best foot forward. And, and we are a big believer in less is more and quality over quantity, as you said before, um, Dave. Um, mm. And I think that you don't have to solve every problem on your website or on your Instagram. It's about kind of identifying at what point of a um, prospective client's kind of decision-making process are they looking at the website? And it might be when they've just first heard about a practice and they go to the website to kind of see what they're about. You, you really want to be presenting, I guess, the the best quality kind of projects and, and the work that you want to attract back. Mm. If you really did want to show 
I guess, something else in your portfolio further down once that conversation has started, then obviously those additional projects can kind of come into the fold then. I also, I think it takes real confidence actually to edit yourself and to not put the whole portfolio out there. I think that's a real statement of confidence of saying, these are our best projects. These are the ones that typify who we want to be and where we're headed and all of those kind of things. And we're comfortable with not showing everything all at once. And yes, once we're down the track of courting you, perhaps we go deeper into the portfolio. But I just think having that confidence and that kind of singular message, it really resonates with audiences. Mm. So we really, yeah. we really, really encourage studios to take that approach. Yeah, I had John Gollings on the podcast like last episode and he was talking about how at the end of the day for him, it really comes down to one or two incredibly impactful images of a project that will make that project really resonate and get people's attention. It's not the other sort of 20 that he takes of all the other angles of the building. It's just making sure he gets that one like kind of killer hero shot. And it was sort of making me think about like the way that we catalog brands in our brain and what we think about them and sort of thinking about it since that episode and thinking about studios that I really like and admire, like say, I don't know, like a Kennedy Nolan or something like that, like these highly regarded studios. But if I actually try and map out, well, what do I actually kind of know about them? What comes to mind when I think about them? It's, you know, only going to be a few projects and a couple of little bits of bits and pieces that I've picked up along the way, just these little impressions I've kind of gathered through different all over the place. It's not one thing, but it's not much at the end of the day to build this really high level of perception of a brand or a practice. So it reinforces for me that, you know, if, if a studio does have just three or four just absolute killer projects and that's what they're presenting and they've edited it and curated it, as you've said, it's possible that as a potential client, you look at that and just straight away, you put them on the top shelf in your mind, right? You just go, yeah, they're, they're top shelf. They're amazing. I love all three things I've seen from them. They're three amazing projects. And maybe that's not quite enough to get you up to that top shelf, <laughs> but, but it certainly feels like you don't need a whole lot more. That's something that I'm starting to get more comfortable with that maybe we don't need to sort of show so much and do so much. It can just be a little bit simpler, a little bit more you know, a bit more restrained as I'm becoming a bit older and more mature in life. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm developing more of an appreciation for that. Um, what do you reckon? Is it, it, do you think it's like, I guess, putting yourself in the shoes of a potential uh, client as well? Like, do, is that sort of how you sort of process things as well? Or I guess, yeah, just interested in your taste. I think what you had described there with someone like the wonderful Kennedy Nolan is mm. a real consistency to what you experience from that studio, whether that be on their Instagram or the website or media or whatever, there's consistency. So you're saying like, oh, well, you'll only take away or retain three or four projects, which I completely agree with. However, yeah. with an example like that, if something, if suddenly something came out that was completely off brand and jarring, you would remember. Oh, uh, you're so right. Yeah. You know, so that would really stand out. So at the moment when it's consistent, it's like a really pure brand expression. It's confident, it's solid. And it's, it's kind of expected in the, in the most positive sense, but yeah, the minute something goes wrong, that's when it kind of jars and that's where problems can arise. That's so interesting. Yes. But in terms of what you were saying about um, the kind of decision-making pro process, I think like all strategy, it, it has to come back to understanding the target market as well. And so it's completely different depending on if we're talking about residential projects where, you know, it could be someone who has 
absolutely zero knowledge or awareness of architecture and design. And so they're coming in very green, whereas, yeah. and they're, they're more likely influenced by things like architecture and interior magazines, because that's kind of what's accessible to the consumer. Whereas if you're mm-hmm. talking like a, about a commercial project or an education project or whatever, and the, the key stakeholders are more like project managers and those kind of things, clearly mm-hmm. there's like a completely different level of knowledge and awareness. And so how they are presented yeah. is going to be different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it plays a pretty big role, doesn't it? I think you're so spot on about that thing about the consistency. There's some sort of like Daniel Kahneman-esque thinking fast and slow thing going on here where your mind goes, I trust that brand. They've been super consistent with me so far. I like everything I've seen from them. So I don't need to retain too much about them because they tick that trust box that I just trust what they put out. But you're right, if that got called into question (laughs) by more like sort of erratic, you know, missing the mark type of work, you would definitely start to put them on a cautionary label in your brain and go, going to be a lot more, I'm going to interrogate anything I see from them a lot more carefully. I'm going to be a lot less likely to just sort of, um, yeah, just take anything that they do as, you know, kind of really great work, right? So I think it does reinforce that idea of, you know, um, as you were kind of saying earlier, Neil, not just putting out absolutely everything, but being very selective. It's like protecting the way that the brand is seen and not and not sort of doing something that's going to, you know, sort of take us down a peg in people's mind and all that sort of thing. Definitely. Everything needs to be grounded in, I guess, a brand's positioning and it needs to go back yeah. to their strategic objectives. So I guess all, all of the marketing tactics that a brand might engage in, we just need to make sure that everything has that kind of strategic reasoning behind it um, mm. so that it, everything is kind of working together to, to kind of give a consistent client experience. Yeah, and looking at that, I think, you know, when you get obviously branding and graphic design, um, it's common for a studio to get kind of their brand Bible or whatever, where it's their sort of guidelines of, you know, how your social media posts might look like, giving you those applications and those suggestions, the do's and don'ts Mm -hmm. of that. And that's very sort of easy to translate into real life because it's visual, they're visual examples and sort of things like that. But I guess like, you know, you touched on previously about how you could be faced with a tactical decision about I'm going to do such and such with my marketing or my website, but let's refer back to the brand strategy document and sort of see if this aligns with what we sort of initially set out here. But I'm imagining that brand strategy document would be like, your brand is, you know, charismatic, but cheeky, but exploratory <laughs> like, or whatever, you know, like where it's like this kind of, you know, that's probably by very superficial kind of take of maybe one small element of that sort of thing. But it's more, it's, I guess, more intellectual in a way. It's not necessarily going to be a sort of visual reference point. There's nothing that you can directly compare to, but, but do you want to maybe like, I guess, talk about how that process of reviewing that brand strategy deliverable versus a decision that you're making. Is it just something that you just have to use your judgment, right? Is it going to be coming back to putting yourself back in the mindset behind that, behind that document and that process and just going, you know, let's remind ourselves what our decision was back then. Or I guess like, what are your thoughts on actually like being faced with tactical decisions and how you sort of stay in line with that strategy? 
Yeah, I, w- I mean, I, I always think it's really helpful to think about practical applications of the brand strategy. And so we actually spend a lot of time with clients helping them understand how they can use the document. And like we were saying earlier, oh, cool. like we were saying earlier, this is not just for marketing. In fact, it's just one component. And so one of the most like tangible and easily understood uses of the brand strategy document is with things like attracting talent, attracting the right talent and the recruitment process. So you have this brand strategy document. It outlines what your values are. It's got language that's been, um, you know, obviously crafted and it's a document that all the key stakeholders in the business have signed off. So when it comes to, for example, writing a job advertisement, that language should filter through into the ad because you want to attract people who that language resonates with. Then when that person has successfully applied and they're sitting in front of you through the interview process, you can literally have those values next to you in the interview and bring them up as conversational topics and see how that candidate responds. And do they share an affinity with some of those values? Are they likely to be a right fit for your studio, your practice. Another quite common way that the brand strategy document is used is in briefing a creative agency for a rebrand. So Mm. often we would be called in and we would work on the brand strategy and then, you know, that would be defined and everyone would sign that off and be feeling great about it. And then the architecture studio, they might actually say, ask us for recommendations on creative agencies to do a new website brand identity, for example. And so the brand strategy that we've worked on forms a really big part of the brief to a creative agency where we've said this is the values, this is where the business is heading, this is what it stands for, this is the target market, this is the competitors, et cetera. And then that informs the creative and ideally the website and the brand identity that comes back is differentiated on those points and has a really solid underpinning. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point to, to talk about as well because as you guys know, I'm kind of rebranding with uh, HiHo and Wes at the moment, absolutely loving the process, but it's been a very simple process and I've loved that because I haven't had to, you know, <laughs> I had this maybe this expectation that I was going to have to go spend like days and days and days in a meeting room discussing my brand definition with them, but they were so great in terms of just rolling with it, going like up and running, just being amazing straight away. Um, but it does raise this thought for me, which, you know, in speaking to some of my clients when they're going through this sort of branding process or new website or whatever, there sometimes is an expectation in the market amongst architects that when they approach a branding studio or graphic design, that's where they're going to have that brand definition conversation. And sometimes that's going to happen. Sometimes that's not going to happen. Whereas you guys are sort of, you, you do that independently as part of more of the marketing and PR side of the system, not the kind of graphic design and, you know, and website development and all that sort of stuff. So I guess I just love your views, Neil, maybe on how you sort of see that conversation happening and putting our kind of conflict of interest aside, you know, that obviously you've got a dog in the fight, but if you were to compare the differences between maybe having it integrated as part of graphic design and branding versus done separately by an external party such as yourself and then briefing a branding agency. Like, do you see there being any like differences in approach there? Yeah, absolutely. This actually comes up quite a lot. And so I guess the the differences in our approach 
is that we treat brand strategy as like the absolute pinnacle. It's the umbrella that is across all elements of the business. So as we've discussed, that includes marketing. Yes, of course, but it also includes internal culture and those kind of things. And then I guess underneath marketing is when you have things like the website and your socials and, you know, all those kind of tactical things. And so we have a lot of relationships with amazing creative agencies, um, hi-ho included. We love, we love those guys. And so I guess um, how we see how we're differentiated is that our brand strategy process and the brand definition project specifically really informs all of the those areas of the business. And so it's about, I guess, it's very marketing driven for sure. And when you go to a creative agency and the brief is for a rebrand and a website and a brand identity, they will absolutely have their own process for drawing out um, how to, what to inform their creative. However, their output is generally the visual, the creative, it's those assets, it's the brand identity, the website, the logo, et cetera. And so I guess their methodology is about informing the creative output. Our methodology is about informing the strategy and everything else that goes on. So we, we, we definitely see huge value in what those creative agencies are doing. We just see a great outcome when I guess we're involved further up the chain and, yeah. and it, yeah. it does happen like that. Yeah, that makes total sense. So, you know, if you're, if you're trying to combine your brand strategy and your branding into one project or exercise, you're possibly only looking at a narrow part of your overall marketing, let alone your broader business, which as you guys touched on includes employees and culture and all sorts of different areas. So you're kind of, as you, as you put it, sort of upstream, you know, going, we're, we're looking at the very, very, very top of the business and, and, and defining all this stuff. And then all the other things beneath it sort of sit underneath that. Yeah. I think that, that, that totally makes sense. Yeah. I, I absolutely get that. And even we had a discussion kind of last week or the week before where we're talking about the differences between, you know, try, I was trying to get an understanding of how you guys see PR and marketing and digital strategy and brand strategy and where these components all sit. And you pointed out this really great, just clarifying thing of it's kind of all under the umbrella of marketing. Um, well, not the brand strategy, but the PR digital stuff, you sort of see that as all just part of marketing and you mentioned earlier you've got this sort of your one of your values is about things being looked at sort of holistically um and not just one area in isolation um so i guess like i would actually be interested in maybe having a quick talk about those couple of areas in terms of now that you've defined a brand with a studio and you've gone through that process and you feel like you've gotten to a place with it that's really good Everyone has, I guess, some idea in their mind of what PR people do, but I don't think anyone really gets it. When you guys are stepping into that sort of PR role and managing PR for, for an architecture firm, for example, I mean, what, what does the process kind of look like? What's the arrangement? What is the working relationship between you guys and an architecture firm? Just to reinforce, I guess, what you were saying, we definitely have a belief in nothing works in isolation when it comes to marketing. And that's why when it, we talk about PR, we always say, how is PR working in conjunction with the rest of the marketing mix? And the reason why that's mm. even a point to bring up or a topic of conversation is because a lot of people do come with this PR kind of request, yeah. you know, and, and we get that totally. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I guess in, in summary, nothing works in isolation, but PR is a really important part. So let's, let's talk about PR. 
So generally when we start working with a client, ideally we've gone through the brand strategy process. So we've got that foundation and that's really solid. And at that point we can be comfortable to get into the tactical marketing side of things. And so we would encourage clients to look at the full marketing mix. And so that means not just PR in the sense of, you know, media relations and all of that kind of stuff, but the website, social, et cetera. So looking at all of that in terms of PR as like a specific service to kind of get into the nuts and bolts of what it might be like working with an agency like us. So basically uh, the way PR works is that we have a monthly retainer agreement and that's based on a Mm -hmm. 12 month contract. So because of the nature of the media life cycle um, in terms of lead times and all of those kind of things, doing anything less than a 12 month uh, agreement is really not going to yield the best results. So we're in a position now where we are pretty strict about a minimum 12 month agreement. And like any kind of strategy, that process starts with understanding the objectives. Um, And so that is going back to really tangible things well, as tangible as is possible. Sometimes it's tangible in a sense that we have a marketing objective, which is to start working on private residential projects of X million budget. That would be one yeah. very specific objective. There might also very be typical brief. <laughs> yeah, there might also be uh, yeah. there might also be a more geographic breach uh, brief. So we want to start doing work in North America. Um, there could be, uh, a more general, um, objective, which would be, you know, we, we want to increase our brand awareness amongst X target market. So the point is, is that we're very clear on what those objectives are. And then from there, we can actually build a strategy that responds to those objectives. And so with things like PR, typically in our agreements, and it does depend on the kind of size of the practice. So, and whether it's, you know, what kind of sectors they're working in, but we would usually have a couple of, uh, key focus projects on the go and when we talk about focus projects essentially it's a it's a it's a it's a project that i guess that hits that brief of putting something out in the world that they want to attract back it's also got some relevance to media in terms of its newsworthiness and ultimately it's something that we can work on because it's been photographed and we have assets to work with so we would agree on what those kind of like priority projects are with that client And then from there, that's when the kind of media liaison and outreach happens. So I guess when you work with an agency like NHO and our comms team who are very, very good at what they do, it's about relationships. You know, these are people who are dealing with the media all day, every day. They are having conversations that are not always about specifically pitching in. could be an incidental conversation about hearing something and then thinking, hey, that could be really good for my client. And so there's all of those media conversations that happen. A big, big part of the role of of working with an agency is having someone that represents your interests amongst multiple stakeholders. So we are finding this is becoming more and more a thing where there's numerous stakeholders involved and people have different objectives, whether it be about their marketing channels or their PR. And it's really, really important that we get everyone in the room together and try and come to a kind of unified approach. So that could be everyone from, when I talk about stakeholders, so you've obviously got your your client who's the architect, but then there's the client's client. There might be a builder involved as well. There might be a landscaper, maybe there's government involved. You know, so there's, it can be quite complex. And so it's really important that we're kind of getting everyone together. 
Yeah. In terms of like our specifics, I guess, um, you know, without kind of going into the really dry details, it is really <laughs> about understanding or developing a media critical path in terms of where you want that project to be published. And so yeah. this is, I guess, I guess, uh, understanding that particularly for, um, for print opportunities, exclusivity is required. So it's really important that all the assets are embargoed and that there's a mm-hmm. negotiation that happens with the magazine. I guess what a lot of architects practices might do is, you know, I'm sure they have great relationships with many titles and they might be speaking with the editor. You know, they're all very accessible and great in the, in the kind of architecture media industry. And so maybe what they would do is like place that project and, you know, get it run in something wonderful like houses or whatnot. I guess what happens differently with an agency is that while that is happening, and if we had agreed that that was kind of like where we wanted the project to offer exclusivity to, we would also be working on a wider critical path that might be looking at international publications, for example. Yeah. And because these things take literal months, it's really important that those conversations are happening concurrently and all the while managing people's expectations. We often joke that it's like a delicate dance because we absolutely need to respect media's need for original content and exclusivities yeah and we want yeah. to we, we want to support the media because it's really important um that we do and that they survive and not only survive but thrive and so understanding yeah. their objectives respecting their need for exclusivity respecting their timelines all of that is really important and it is an education process with a lot of clients who don't realize that a project could be on hold for six months if you want to land that print placement yeah, absolutely. Oh man, that's such a good overview and I've got so many questions. And the answer for every single question is probably going to be, it depends on your brief and depends on your objective and depends on the project. But I'm just going to beg you to try and take a, <laughs> to try and take a side on a couple of these to say in general, it would probably go like one way or this way. I guess like firstly, I thought that comment you made about the stakeholders was really, really interesting because I guess like in terms of asking about, you know, you guys doing PR, at this like very very professional level with architects are doing it at kind of the amateur level you guys are doing it the pro league what those points of difference are between the diy way and the pro way and one thing that i see architects really struggling with is when multiple stakeholders start to be involved when the builder is trying to go out there and take their own photos and or the client is has done the project because it's a big investment for their business and they're deciding, okay, now I'm gonna go, I wanna use this photographer and I wanna pitch these media and I wanna enter it into this thing. And it just becomes a mess and it can become pretty much a nightmare for architects sometimes to have to deal with the confrontation that can be involved in terms of saying, hey, this is my work. I want it shot the way that it should be shot. I want it released to the media it should be released to. And I, I don't want you all out here just jeopardizing shit, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I think I think that that's actually amazing to have someone on your team who uh, you guys are almost like really scary, intimidating, like legal department <laughs> where I can kind of go, hey, great, awesome that you want to do that, but please speak to my PR people. Then you guys just jump down their throat. That's what I'm really kind of like. Not as vicious as that, true. but... <laughs> you, you do it. You do it in a really soft way, but you don't. You don't take shit from people. Basically, is what I'm guessing. I, I think um, for from an architect's perspective, you know, obviously they need to maintain those kind of long-standing relationships, and so understandably, yeah. it can get a little bit awkward or can be yes. difficult to kind of yeah. navigate. Whereas because we're coming 
we're external to the business. Um, we kind of have the luxury of um, our relationship is with the client. And so um, I guess we can kind of um, come in and represent them without all of the baggage around. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, keeping everyone. It, it, yeah. it, exactly. It gives them like a bit of deniability with their client yeah. and their and their consultant relationships as well. That they're kind of like, look, my PR people, they're crazy. But, you know, I just do what they, I do what, I do what they, I do what they tell me. I, I like, you know, they know what's best for the project. So like, I'm sorry, but we just have to like be strict about it. Um, I think that, I think that's a really like huge thing, particularly as the projects get bigger, I can just see yeah. it becoming, yeah, an absolute exactly. thing. Yeah. And um, can I just you, add to that, that yeah. in terms of, you know, effective stakeholders, Holder management. It sounds so dry, but it's really about understanding each stakeholder's objectives, coming together as yeah. early as possible and discussing what do you want to get out of it and making it an inclusive kind of conversation. Yeah. And we certainly, we try and not be control freaks, but yeah. when it comes to things like media, you know, when you've only got one chance for an exclusivity and someone releases a photo or is promised somewhere else, like it can be a real disaster. So I yeah. think we're quite good at diplomacy and mm. that's a really specific skill. And, and I definitely agree with what you said about just having a bit of distance makes it much easier to um, yeah. to have a stern voice in that at that time. Yeah, absolutely. But no, I'm really glad you, you sort of brought that back up that, you know, you did mention it's about getting all those stakeholders together and actually getting people involved and making sure that, you know, we can hopefully mitigate some of those issues that arise where people are like, they've just gone off and done their own thing and haven't really whatever. But if you can kind of bring everyone together, I think that's really, really interesting. You also mentioned the media, the, the kind of the critical path, which is such a great term for it, because I think when we're talking about which publications or which titles are we interested in, you're, you don't know you're going to get any of them right. You're going to be approaching them. So you're kind of going, okay, maybe we start here. This would be like our first preference for our university elective. Like if we could get anything we wanted, we go here first, but then sort of second, third, fourth, we work our way down. Is that kind of what you're referring to in terms of a critical path? You're thinking, is it in terms of our preferences, like what publications we want to approach sort of first yeah absolutely and it is about the need for exclusivity there's you know we never would approach with a kind of spray and pray uh, method where you kind of push it out there and hope for the best so we would go back to our objectives with the client and so yeah. if the client's objectives is to um uh, you know, get more work in uh, residential or whatever, then that's where we're talking to those particular titles. Or maybe, for example, the client, it's actually more a positioning objective and they're trying to differentiate from some of their competitors and therefore international media is more important. Yeah. So international media uh, might be um, further removed from the potential for direct lead generation. However, what yeah. it can do from a positioning point of view and a differentiation point of view can be really powerful. So it's, mm. it's understanding all of those kind of things. Or for example, another one would be if they wanted to get in front of decision makers, such as like project managers or kind of more exec level, we would be thinking, well, where is that audience? They're more likely to be reading the AFR or the Sydney Morning Herald, whatever it is. And so then yeah. is, there an, is there a newsworthy angle that can be pulled out of this project? So it's not about just running the project in an architecture magazine. It's about yeah. getting your firm and your work in front of that audience who are not reading Architecture Press, but they're decision makers along the way in terms of you winning work. Yeah, you, t you touched on it for a second, this idea that maybe from a differentiation standpoint and a few other things, like 
not going for the immediate quick win in terms of hoping the phone rings the day after the magazine comes out, but more about establishing the brand and, and positioning yourself like, I'm just maybe interested in you expanding on that a little bit because it can be a little bit counterintuitive. I think people go like, well, if I'm, you know, I'm doing this to get clients, right? So shouldn't I be, shouldn't I be getting published in the place where I think like, like the clients are all reading like the interiors magazine or whatever. So could you just expand on that a little bit more, Neil, just in terms of that, taking that sort of maybe that longer game or that indirect approach where it's not so obvious that the client is there in that publication. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, sorry if I sound like a broken record, but it just comes back to strategy again. What are you trying to yeah. achieve? So in getting your work published, what is the objective? And so I think in terms of media generally, we would encourage or we would posit that you should never expect the phone to ring from one editorial feature. I mean, it can happen mm. really, and that's obviously great, but don't associate direct lead generation with that one feature. I feel like it's a dangerous game because if you judge yeah. the value of that editorial exposure on whether you got direct leads, I feel like that would be a, um, an unfair kind of measure. So that's mm. probably a first school of thought to get your head around is that that one piece is not working in isolation. It's working with all the other touch points. And so then yeah. it's probably also about thinking about, say your competitors, like I used the international example. So, and that's a really great way to differentiate yourself because largely Australian publications are obviously publishing Australian projects. That makes a lot of sense. And if all of your competitors are also being published by the same platforms here, well, one strategy is to look internationally and see how can we get published internationally and then can we take the cachet of that um, and use that as a differentiator. And it's actually not either or. It's about going back to that critical path and navigating those things. So for example, you know, we could be negotiating with someone like the local project who we love and they might require that uh, kind of global exclusivity or Australian first run exclusivity. And we agree to that, that's the best decision. But in the meantime, we're also talking to those internationals and we're lining those up. And it's actually very dependent on the publication around who requires global exclusivity versus Australian exclusivity. And the Australian magazine might care what the British magazine is doing, but vice versa. So there's a lot of kind of, I yeah. guess, just understanding what's important to them. And we are seeing though more and more need for exclusivity, absolutely in print. That's kind of always been the way. But now with online story as well, more people are looking for exclusivity because everyone is chasing original content so that they have something yeah. to offer their audience and it does make it tricky but i just i really think that all of us as part of the broader design ecosystem need to value and respect the design media and understand yeah. the kind of things that they're facing the headwinds that they're facing and be supportive of that and i really believe that you can kind of achieve everyone's objectives yeah absolutely i think i think you're spot on as well about not trying to measure it in terms of direct leads i mean i hate i hate hearing it from an architect when they say oh yeah we got published in you know such and such magazine a few years ago and just nothing came from it so let's like <laughs> definitely not go back there i'm just like oh come on you're just you're absolutely missing the point right yeah. like you know you're not you're not going after that client who is in the market looking for an architect from scratch with no preconceived awareness of anybody or anything. And then they're just flicking through the magazine like it's the telephone book <laughs> and just like calling, you know, whichever practice they come across the next day. I mean, that's, 
it's not like what you're building your business development strategy and marketing strategy on top of just people randomly spontaneously finding you the day that they start looking for an architect exactly really makes sense. and i think um it's very rare for a client a client to say um this is the reason why i came to you because i saw that clipping yeah. in a magazine or because I saw an Instagram post, like it is about everything kind of working together and yeah. they might see that magazine placement and then three years down the track, they might actually have the need to engage an architect. Um, yeah. So it's about, yeah, it's about, it's about all of those things, I guess, through, through that um, three-year period kind of working together and yeah. helping kind of um, position that, that um, practice in a certain way and being top of mind, I guess, when the need arises. And, and it yeah. often acts as well as a proof point when someone is evaluating the architect. So maybe they did come across them on Instagram, for example, and then they're kind of getting deeper into the funnel. They're on the website, they're looking, or even they're Googling. It's not even going to the website, but they Google that architecture. And then all these online articles come up and it's like, oh, they've been published by Wallpaper and they've been published by the local yeah. project. And so they all build this these points of validation in the mind of the yeah. prospective client. I agree. I think it's totally just like, it accumulates and it has an impact. This it's all these small things. It's not just like one thing that makes one architecture practice differentiated from others. It's a combination of perhaps hundreds of different little factors of differentiation is what it sort of feels like. Like if you're comparing two completely identical practices, like apples and apples, there's no difference otherwise, except one of them has the slight addition of they were in, let's say, some global architecture competition. They maybe were mentioned in the Wall Street Journal at some point because of some amazing house they did in the countryside. And maybe they gave it a lecture at a university in Croatia at some <laughs> point, right? Versus the practice that's missing those three items but has everything else the same. Like that, that just, it's slightly like, maybe it's imperceptible point of difference, but just like the existence of that stuff that that other studio doesn't have starts to create something that's a little bit more noteworthy, a bit more distinctive and draws somebody's attention towards that practice, right? Possibly makes them trust them a little bit more, think that they may be a little bit more credible. Would you guys agree that it's like, it's about those those little things that just add up and have that kind of impact over time? A hundred percent. And and I think uh, that also brings me to, to saying that whilst I know we are talking very specifically about, I guess, PR and media relations, mm. We actually, I guess, look at it as more broadly communications because we aren't just looking at media placements, but we are kind of bringing in other touch points. It would be things like speaking opportunities and collaborations with different brands and yeah, social media, obviously, events even, taking part in kind of public programming of a different event. So it's all of those things. And that's part of, I guess, um, uh, the approach of in working with an agency, you've kind of got that marketing council that's like an on, yeah. ongoing reference point. Yeah. In, in terms of, I guess, since you guys are looking at this sort of stuff holistically, I think sometimes if we're talking about the PR around new projects, right, or like the media side of new projects, oftentimes those timelines can be really, really long, right? And as you guys were talking about the exclusivity and embargoing things and not being able to do anything with a new project for months and months and months while you're waiting for it to come out in a publication. What's your sort of house view on how you balance that against 
kind of the demands to sort of keep the keep the social media going, keep the newsletter going, keep like keep the things that, like the output of content that's a little bit more frequent. Where you're going, we're maybe running short on content here. We could really use some new images. We could really use a new project to sort of inject some stuff into what we're doing on the digital side. How do you guys kind of look at balancing that against these requirements around the media? Is it sort of like because the media is really important, it sort of takes that precedence and then digital has to kind of work around that? Or what's your, how do you sort of handle some of those delays sometimes? Hopefully there's a number of projects that are photographed and ready to push out. And so it might be a matter of selecting a couple that might be kind of almost kind of quarantined for Um, or even selecting um, some key kind of hero images for media usage and then using some secondary shots for, let's say, website or social media. I think Mm. that um, it's important also not to be purely reliant on project assets or completed project Mm. assets for content. So that's where other things come, come in, like thought leadership pieces from key personnel within the business, or it might be... Yeah. you know, things that the, the practice might be passionate about, like putting that forward. So, so I guess it doesn't have to be just purely reliant. I guess the social media yeah. channel doesn't have to be just purely reliant on um, assets. The other thing is progress shots and, and showing, um, you know, a bit of the behind the scenes um, workings behind, uh, you know, a project that might be yeah. in, in progress. So it is a bit of a juggling act, but we feel like, you know, that there's normally enough there to work with. Yeah, that's a great point because I think like a lot of the accounts that we're talking about, if we want to consistently be posting stuff to them on the Instagram or whatever, and there are other channels where, yeah, we're looking at those other options, right? So um, you sort of behind the scenes progress stuff kind of written thought leadership mm-hmm. content maybe like podcasts and interviews <laughs> and things could be like that creative fill that sort of gap in the schedule a little bit mm-hmm. and be like potentially more powerful than project images anyway um, but also I'm guessing like visualization and renders and stuff like that can be pretty bloody awesome as well when you get some of that so yeah so it's so actually that's a really great way of approaching it because I see sometimes clients just kind of really frustrated that they've been asked by an editor to wait till June, July next year for their project to go in a magazine. And they're going like, oh, I feel like my whole marketing is just going to fall apart because I'm not able to put this project that I feel that I've been years in the making building up to this exciting moment. This is going to you know, really make such a big difference. But I guess like you just need to see that delay coming, right? Anticipate that and then be thinking about, well, shit, we better get on to creating some other types of content to kind of fill that gap because otherwise you don't want to just be waiting around for the projects, but also you don't want to just be completely one dimensional. Here's finished project, finished project, finished project, right? Yes, 100%. Yeah. And it's about coming up with ways to ensure that we can continue to come up with kind of new ideas and content ideation that isn't just reliant on, I guess, completed project imagery. So it might be coming up with um, angle to pitch in a particular kind of practices profile to a media publication, let's say, if let's say the project pipeline might be not plentiful, I guess it's kind of... Um, <laughs> Go through a bit of a dry spell. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, so it might be actually dialing up the focus on, on the principal's profile and thought leadership and ensuring that, I guess, um, they're still kind of top of mind. 
um, and yeah. creating opportunities for them. Yeah, I'm always interested in that sort of idea of that non-work focused stuff. And I think as like marketing, communication, PR people, like we love that in theory, but it's so difficult for architects to execute that. And it's kind of the generally tends to be like the exception rather than the rule right in the industry. Like most practices are not putting out consistent sort of written content or, or, or real thought leadership stuff. It's very, very rare. But we, we want to encourage people to do a little bit more of it. But I think an interesting thing in terms of that thought leadership, and this came up on an episode I just recorded with Jeremy from Breathe. He was talking about how the marketing or communications people in his studio, I think 50% of their time is devoted to advocacy or what they kind of describe as advocacy, where they're basically kind of putting the direct business objectives aside for a minute and going, okay, our job during this time with this energy their, their main issue that they're focusing on at the moment is trying to push for buildings to use electric, to be completely electric rather than using any gas. And so they're going out there, they're talking to the media, they're engaging with community groups, they're looking for places that they can go and talk about this issue. And I thought that was just such a great practical example of finding a, a focus for that thought leadership to happen and maybe it gets more described as advocacy for certain practices or brands rather than I'm going to sit down and like create a blog post which I think is really unappealing to like a lot of um, architects like what do you just briefly I mean in terms of is that sort of what you see occurring or do you feel like that's also kind of more the exception than the rule like do you sort of see it going possibly under this label as sort of trying to like push for broader change in the industry on certain things? Is that sort of what tends to underpin that kind of thought leadership in a relevant way these days? I think not always. I think it needs to be authentic to the practice. So it has to be driven by what they are genuinely passionate about. And I think Breathe do that really well in terms Mm. of they really own that space and I feel like they do a really great job with advocacy. So I'm not surprised in terms of hearing about the 50% focus for their internal comms team on that. And and that seems very kind of appropriate and genuine to, to them. Yeah. So I guess our job is to really uncover is the practice, you know, what is our client genuinely passionate about? What drives them? And what can they authentically have a clear kind of point of view on? So that might be different for different businesses and it might not always be about contributing to the broader landscape. Yeah, interesting. But having a point of view on any subject matter is really important. People connect and respond to a point of view. And even if it's controversial or it's challenging in some way, just actually standing for something is really, really important. And some people are going to be more comfortable than others than doing that. But in terms Mm. of the kind of, I guess, whether it's advocate, what, you know, it's obviously very appropriate for Breathe. Some other people might feel intimidated about doing that. We would encourage studios actually to look inwards and try and identify what are the storytelling opportunities within their studio. And often this does come down to there being someone who's a champion in the team who's, you know, kind of gets lumped with it. But ideally there's someone who is passionate. And often what happens, and I think this is across all kind of creative practice, is that if you're in it and you're doing the day-to-day and that's your world, you can take it for granted. However, speaking as someone who is not a designer or an architect, when I'm sitting in a meeting with an architect and I can think of one very specific example, and he's very quick to get out his pencil and pad and sketch something to to illustrate a point to me, 
that to me is always a really exciting moment, which he would not think twice about. He's doing that all day, every day. But if you're on the outside and you're not a designer, those little moments can actually be really engaging. Mm. And, and I think they're often dismissed. Another example was I was in a studio recently and I had never seen before their collection and of all the architectural models that they had. And I just thought that yeah. was so beautiful and such a kind of a beautiful way to look back on the breadth of their work. And I had, and I said, have you ever thought about photographing these in like a, you know, professional kind of style manner? That would be amazing content. Yeah. You know, so there's, there's different ways of approaching it. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's probably a good place for us to finish up, guys. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I learned a lot from listening to you guys talk about like really clarifying some of the nuances about what you do and what you don't do. I think it's really interesting. Um, So yeah, thank you so much, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. A pleasure to be here. That was my conversation with Neil Hugh Kenner and Lillian Lim from Neil Hugh Office. If you'd like to learn more about Neil Hugh Office, you can visit nho.agency or follow them on Instagram at nho.agency. If you'd like to learn more about Office Dave Sharp, you can visit officedavesharp.com or follow me on Instagram at officedavesharp. That's all for this episode of Office Talk. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.